Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Today, we look at ourselves and at our past and the harms our publication has caused since it was first launched more than two centuries ago. We're a very old journal. We've published a lot of things that I'm very proud of, but we've also published things that, frankly, some of them are hurtful. Our job is to bring health and well-being to people, and our profession has not always done that. My name is Eric Rubin, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. I think it was important for us to go back and take a look. What is it that we were publishing? What kind of harm was it likely to cause? And ultimately, how do we prevent ourselves from doing something similar again? Today on Intention to Treat, injustices in the New England Journal of Medicine's distant and not-so-distant past. We had the opportunity to pair with a group of historians highly qualified to look at what we've done and then leave them on their own. We didn't want to be influencing the process. We didn't want to make ourselves look better or worse. We simply wanted the truth. When we do research, and we are a research journal, are we representing people who need to be helped? The answer is not always. And it's very clear from reading these articles that, in many cases, we've done more harm than good. We, as a profession, we need to take responsibility for who we are now and, I believe, who we were in the past. So when we look at what kind of injustices have occurred over history, what I hope people take away is that when they're making a decision about how to conduct their research or how to deliver medical care to an individual patient, they think about it in the context of what's happened before. And this history is actually relevant to what you do on a day-to-day -day basis in the kinds of decisions that we have to make today. That's Dr. Eric Rubin. He's editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. We're now joined by Dr. David Jones. He's a professor of the culture of medicine at Harvard University and an editor of the NEJM Injustice series. And also Evelyn Hammonds. She's a professor of the history of science and African-American studies at Harvard and worked on the series. So Dr. Jones, I want to start with you. The New England Journal of Medicine made a fairly bold move when it decided to publish this series looking inward investigating its own racist and sexist history. So where did this idea come from? About 10 years ago, as part of the celebration of the journal's 200th anniversary, they had done a, a series of historical studies of the journal and how it evolved over time. And as we were doing that work, just accumulated this file of articles that were, were full of what I would you know, consider shocking content. And then much more recently, Harvard University had undertaken an analysis of the university's involvement with slavery and its consequences over the university's very long history. And in May 2022, the university hosted a large public event to share the findings of this analysis. And one of the speakers there was, was a, a scholar from Boston University, Ibrahim Kendi. And he focused on this one example that had been published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1842 by a prominent 
a physician from Massachusetts, Edward Jarvis. And what Jarvis had done is the U.S. Census gets published every 10 years. And so he had data from the 1840 census. And for the first time ever, the U.S. Census had tried to count the number of insane people who existed. And that was the phrase that they used. And when he did an initial analysis of this data, he was startled to see that it looked like there was a higher percentage of insane black people living in the North than in the South. And the first conclusion he drew from this was there must be something about slavery that was good for the mental health of enslaved Africans. And he thought about this, and, and his writing really sounds remarkable, amazing, horrifying to us now. He wrote, slavery has a wonderful influence upon the development of moral faculties and the intellectual powers, refusing man many of the hopes and responsibilities which the free self-thinking and self-acting enjoy and sustain. It saves him from some of the liabilities and dangers of active self-direction. So far as this goes, it proves the common notion that in the highest state of civilization and mental activity, there is the greatest danger of mental derangement. For here, in slavery, where there is the greatest mental torpor, we find the least insanity. So this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine at the time. And what happened? So it's one of these classic cases where an article gets published. The author almost immediately realizes that there was a mistake. So within two months, he had reanalyzed his data and realized that someone in the census office down in Washington, D.C. had made a whole series of errors collecting the data from the various states, and that Jarvis's entire analysis had been based on mistakes made by these census clerks. And so he published a retraction. But what often happens is the original article gets attention, not the retraction. And so this claim that enslavement was good for the mental health of Africans continued to circulate for decades. There were debates in the Congress about admitting Texas into the Union. The Secretary of State invoked this idea to argue that we should admit Texas as a slave state because slavery is protective of the mental health of these enslaved people. I would add that the belief that somehow slavery had qualities in the development of African-Americans' mental states that was positive was something that then medical educators taught for years and years and years going into the future. Observations that were made far later than Jarvis's work were never questioned because that belief became so deeply embedded in medical theory and practice. So despite a retraction, this journal article had a lasting and very destructive impact. These kinds of myths shrouded in science about slavery and African-Americans were made by the New England Journal of Medicine by doctors in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts was known as the birthplace of the abolitionist movement. So what does this tell us? One thing I would say right away, you can't equate the abolitionist views that slavery was an abhorrent institution with also claiming that they were committed to the full equality of African-Americans. Those are two different things. And so they were uh, against slavery as an institution. They were not necessarily in favor of full equality of African-Americans with whites. Which is a really important point, because one thing that you see after the Civil War is slavery has formally been ended, but that faith in white supremacy or African inferiority persists in medical thinking for decades. Can you give us some examples that you found in the journal archives? 
So two of the diseases that got the most attention in the 19th century were tuberculosis and insanity. And throughout the 19th century, you'll see time and time again, articles claiming that these afflictions are the particular problem of African-Americans. And so when you release them from slavery, it's just too much for them. And they can't compete with the Teutonic brain, which is often seen as the epitome of human cognitive power. And so they, they just lose out in the struggle for existence, and this drives them mad. And that's why you see so much insanity. And you'll see different articles, whether they valorize the Teutonic brain, which are people from Germany, or the Anglo-Saxon brain, people from England. And you see these constant belittlement of African-Americans or indigenous Americans and their failure to keep up with the Anglo-Saxon or Teuton standard. And then in terms of tuberculosis, what you'll see is you know, tuberculosis was the leading cause of death of everyone in the U.S. in the 19th century. It wasn't just a disease of Black Americans or Indigenous Americans. Plenty of white people were dying from tuberculosis. But the perception was always that these other groups were dying at higher rates. And the claim that gets made is that you know, these African people, they just don't understand hygiene and sanitation. In the nice old days when they were on plantations, the plantation owners took good care of them and provided basic food and kept them clean and told them how to live their lives and, and everything was fine. But now that they have been released from the supervision by these benevolent white slave owners, all of a sudden, you know, all hell breaks loose. The conclusion was all hope is lost for these people. They're going to go extinct. This notion of equality is a fantasy. And, and there was no need for any medical practitioner to try to ameliorate the situation that Black patients faced as they lived in, you know, decrepit housing with little clean water, sanitation facilities or any of that. They argued those things aren't the most important things. These people are destined by their very nature that they're going to die. And that's just inevitable. Professor Hammonds, did any of this material published in the journal surprise you? None of it surprised me because as early as Thomas Jefferson's writing in the Notes on the State of Virginia, he did an enormously detailed comparison between the whites who were settling in Virginia and the imported Africans who were made to be slaves. And he explained the reason why they were fit to be slaves because of their biology because of their physical differences, their mental capacities, because these people are fundamentally different from us who are white, who should be citizens and control and grow this country. But these African peoples cannot be part of that because they are different from us in every aspect of their body and their character and their intellectual capacities. And that is given by nature, not by us. We're not, we, he said, we're not doing this to them. We are only recognizing these fundamental differences that are in their bodies that we cannot change because they're given by nature and they will never change. And a lot of these kinds of racist ideals were about indigenous populations as well. There's some romanticized reading that you'll see in the, in the journal in the 1810s, 20s, 30s about how the indigenous Americans in their savage state or in their primitive state were remarkably healthy. They could go swimming in the winter and do things that would kill these effete civilized Europeans. And so there was this early moment of grudging respect for what they were capable of. But over time, that shifts. And especially after you see the advent of Charles Darwin and these notions of natural selection and survival of the fittest, 
more and more you see the kind of dynamic that Evelyn was describing, that it's just hopeless. There are three groups of people, red, white, and black, and the white ones are the most fit, and they're the ones who are going to survive. And that just is pervasive. And so, for instance, in 1860, the New England Journal of Medicine reprinted an article from a British newspaper that was trying to explain what they saw as the gradual extinction of indigenous Americans. And the author wrote, citing an American physician as the source of this, one generation of them became addicted to the use of firewater or alcohol. They have a degenerate and comparative imbecile progeny who then indulge in the same vicious habit with their parents. Their progeny is still more degenerate. And after a very few generations, the race ceases altogether. And again, an example that I like to use is one in which a physician stands before a medical society where he says, I want to talk about ovarian cysts in the Negro. And he says, before you, I hold up a cyst. It has all the characteristics of a cyst. He said, but it's from, it's from the body of a Negro. So it can't possibly be a cyst because Negroes have not evolved to the cyst-bearing stage of civilization. So that shows you how they even interpreted actual parts of someone's body based on their race to say that it can't be true. And therefore, many physicians who saw these cysts in Black women ignored them to the detriment of the health of Black women. Why do you think over and over again the injustices that we were seeing were about comparing and saying this is biology. If something is given by nature, innate, never going to change, that explains things that have no other explanation readily available. And in that sense, it supports a power structure because these comparisons are always with whites who are more fit, have the best bodies, the best brains. And so it's just fuel or more evidence that the hierarchy of the races is justified. And therefore, you don't have to spend resources to try to ameliorate the conditions of indigenous peoples, black and brown peoples, immigrants over time. You just don't have to because it's like, it's biology. What do you want from us? So what's the significance that this material was published in the New England Journal of Medicine at the time? One of the things that's interesting about the journal and its role in history is that it changes over time. For most of the 19th century, the New England Journal of Medicine is a local medical journal. It's mostly written by Boston doctors, for Boston doctors. You'll see some responses coming in from doctors in other parts of New England, but it was really focused on the local community. Over the course of the 19th century, it starts to have a more national outlook. And so they'll publish articles where doctors from the North go on vacations to the South and they write back about all the great things they saw down South. And they talk to the prominent Southern physicians, many of whom were responsible for some of the most racist of the 19th century medical writing, Hosea Knott, Samuel Cartwright, and people like that. They take vacations to New Orleans and talk about how interesting it is to see the slave markets in in New Orleans. But if you fast forward to the mid to late 20th century, The journal really then does become a national institution, and it has a readership that's much wider than the profession. And so if you were to say, well, what was the impact of the journal's writings in the 19th century? Its impact is mostly on buttressing the the thought of physicians. And so if you were a doctor who was trying to figure out, you know, what do I think about 
all these other kinds of people who are now coming into this country. And you're getting fed this diet of very racist, very white supremacist material in your medical journal, then you feel justified in, in preserving those kinds of beliefs. And then in the 20th century, when you have other audiences who are reading this work, this kind of medical discussion, debate, medical dialogue is having a direct effect on public understanding of these issues. And so if someone wanted to say, well, you know, what do we think? Are, are Black people and white people really equal in 2023? Or what's the capability of Black people to, ach to achieve things? Or, you know, why is it that life expectancy is shorter in Black Americans than in white Americans? Well, the fact that you have journals that have a 200-year legacy of saying, well, no, there are inherent differences between these races. That's just how the world works. Why would you be surprised that Black people don't live as long? We've been telling you for 200 years that they are the weaker race. And so that becomes a real problem because the, to the extent that science still perpetuates some of this kind of judgmental, racist, you know, choose your adjectives carefully, but a lot of the medical literature is looking at different groups of humans and issuing value judgments about them. And then those value judgments have consequences on public discourse more widely. And at the same time, the role of the journal serves to build community between physicians. They share information, they share collaborations. It's a place where people convene to move medical knowledge forward. So by the end of the 19th century, the journal is interested in being a part of building the authority of medical knowledge. So as the New England Journal becomes a national and eventually global source of medical knowledge, I'd like to switch gears here to the profession itself and who had access to training while these racist theories were mainstream. Let's talk about the 1910 Flexner Report that transformed the standards for medical education and as a result, shut down black medical schools. The Flexner Report, which was commissioned to evaluate the quality of medical schools across the United States and Canada. The report came back and said, there are many of these schools do not have adequate facilities to really teach students about the best information that we now know within medicine that's fully scientific and highly technological at the same time. And so some of these schools should not continue to be able to train students. What happened in that evaluation by Abraham Flexer was that they left only three African-American medical schools that were considered to be even remotely reasonable. So shut down the other four that were cut, completely shut down. But the two most famous ones are Meharry Medical School in Nashville, Tennessee, and Howard University's Medical School in Washington, D.C. Now, what Flexner is not considering is that many white physicians do not treat black patients, do not accept black patients, and particularly in places where the largest numbers of black people live at that time, which is in the American South. But he could have said, you know what, let's just take, for example, Harvard Medical School could join with Meharry Medical School and build a program that will allow for the education of more African-Americans. Or Howard could join with Johns Hopkins, for example. But he didn't recommend those kind of ideas that shared resources between the most elite American medical schools and these black schools. 
And so it, it, it resulted in a reduction in the number of African-Americans who could practice medicine because the other leading medical schools were only going to train one or two, two or three, you know, not many more, and that didn't change. And so many more African-American people never saw a physician at all. And the long-term impact of what happened under the Flexner Report has had a fundamentally deleterious effect on the health of African-Americans. There's still too few African-American physicians, and particularly those who want to and actually go into medicine because they want to serve their communities. And the medical schools are still struggling in trying to increase the numbers of African-Americans who will be studying medicine and will serve their, the populations that have been so completely underserved for so many years. That's Evelyn Hammonds. She's a professor of the history of science and African-American studies at Harvard University, and also Dr. David Jones. He's a professor of the culture of medicine at Harvard and editor of the NEJM Injustice series. We had help from our managing editor, Deborah Molina. Our engineer is Mike Toda. Next time, part two of our exploration of the historical injustices published in the New England Journal of Medicine and why it matters today. It requires a reckoning of the past that says, how did we get here? And if we don't understand how we got here, we can't change the future. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gotham. <laughs>